Amen. There's one. <laughs> hey, is this the end? Is this it? Man, Mark chapter 9. That's the question we're going to answer today. Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 9. We just finished our narrative, our story in history where Jesus met with the disciples. And this is the question that's on their mind. And it's the question I believe that's on a lot of minds at the moment. So um, keep your finger there because this is going to be our launching point because we're going to end up in Revelation today. Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 9. Remember the disciples, they just, seeing Jesus, seeing him, his glorified self, seeing God, faith becoming sight. That's where they were. That's what Jesus did for them. Three men, three of the disciples, uh, so they would be able to manage the rest of their life because the pressure that was coming for them to declare the message of the gospel that they didn't understand yet, that's where uh, Jesus was giving them. As they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves. Quite frankly, I don't know how they did that, but they, they did. Questioning, again, what this rising from the dead might mean. Verse 11, they asked him, Jesus, Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things, and how is it written, the Son of Man, that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you, Elijah has come. And I'm smooshing here what Matthew says too. They did not recognize him. That's from Matthew. They did whatever they pleased to him. Again, this is from Matthew. The world hates Jesus and his followers. That is as it's written. The disciples then understood he was speaking about John the Baptist. In this passage, in this little section, there's three categories, and we're going to focus on one this morning. There's a prohibition. Don't tell anyone. Why? Because they don't know the gospel yet. They're still on the other side of the cross and the resurrection. So Jesus says, don't say anything, don't say anything until the resurrection. Why? Because before that, what do you have? Who is Jesus? Man, he's this really great teacher. He can gather a lot of people. He's doing a lot of miracles, but what do you have? That's about it, right? He's teaching about the kingdom, and he's doing all this stuff, and people are all excited about it. But that's all he is right now. Even after the confession that Peter gives. Then you have the prophecy, verse 11. Hey, doesn't Elijah come first? Now, they were good Jewish men. They, would just, they did all of this. They understood this. It's coming from Malachi chapter 4. They would have been taught that. Malachi says, Elijah comes first before the... God restores everything like it was meant to be before sin, but where he restores and remakes everything, Elijah has to come. They would have understood that. But what they didn't understand, and Jesus corrects them, is I believe he's referring to maybe Isaiah 53. Yeah, but doesn't the Son of Man have to suffer first? And therein lies the pattern. That's the last category here, and that's what I want to focus on. The pattern that Jesus is giving is that the cross comes before the glory. Suffering comes before the glory or the restoration of the kingdom. And this is what they continue to struggle with. So much so that even when you go to the book of Acts, Luke is writing there and he's establishing uh, the the church and what it's going to look like in his writing. They still, even then, after the the resurrection, um, Matthew chapter 1, they see him ascend, all of that. um, And they get to this question in Acts chapter 1 verse 6. 
An amazing question. So when they had come together, they asked him, Jesus. So the disciples are asking this question once again. Lord, is it this time you're going to store the kingdom of Israel? Is it the end? Right? You just said you had to go through this and then the glory. Is it time? <laughs> They've been asking this this whole time. I really believe that's what they thought was going to happen. This was the plan. You told us that it was going to happen, if not right then, at least in their lifetime. And every generation thereafter, when trouble in the world gets stirred up like it currently is, everybody is kind of on walking on eggshells. Is this it? Well, there was a lot left that, to have happen at that moment in time in history. John hadn't even wrote his revelation and what must come and all of those things. And Jesus basically says, you have everything you need to do the task I've just given you to go and baptize the nations. So Jesus says to them in verse 7 of Acts chapter 1, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons. The Father has fixed his own authority. God sees, the Father's already fixed this. And it's not for you to know. What's his point? Let's get busy with what the task I just told you to go do. Go and make disciples. That's the task. But the tension of this question is now coming to everything that's happened with Israel and, and everything, and for good reason. The events that has put the world on edge and how fast it could get out of hand. And we all understand that. And you probably maybe have had those conversations. Which, quite frankly, can be a good thing because that's a gospel conversation waiting to happen, right? One of the major differences between our narrative this morning and us today is that they, the disciples are living before the cross, before the resurrection. They're asking the question in real time of Jesus. We, however, are on the other side of the cross. The next stop for us is Jesus' return. So is this the end? You can read about that in 2 Timothy chapter 3, 1 John 2. John says, is this the last hour? How do, how do you know? He says, this is the last hour, the last days. How do you know that? Because there are many antichrists, false teachers have already come. 1 Peter 1 he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in these last times for your sake. 1 Thessalonians 5. You are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. So we find ourselves asking these questions and hearing this in conversation. By the way, I believe once you've figured out, oh, this is the day, before you get the words out, oh, this is it, it's too late. <laughs> it's already happened to you. Listen, there is no more prohibition of Jesus' charge to be quiet. It is go tell it on the mountains. John the Baptist was this type and shadow of Elijah. It's going to be like that. It can't be that because Jesus still has to die and be resurrected. And if you process that out, if Israel actually understood that about John the Baptist, what would have not happened? There would have been no cross. There would have been no salvation. There would have been no hope for you and for me. And you can read about the two witnesses in John's Revelation, chapter 11. And I often wonder about that. It, will, will, those two witnesses that's described there, will that be Moses and Elijah? Kind of like how it was in the Transfiguration. I believe Jesus has answered the question. It's for you and for me, that same answer. It's not for you and I to know the times or the seasons. God has fixed a day, a day, by his own authority. 
but I believe it's vitally important that we pay attention to the pattern that Jesus has given us in our text. What's the pattern? Suffering comes before glory. And you've experienced that at some level. We all do as human beings at some level. And if you're not grounded in that understanding of his word, it will be hard, dare I say impossible, for you to finish the race that God has given you in faith if you don't understand that. To deal with all the suffering and evil that we are seeing presently. Romans 2.18 says this, Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time, his life, the life that he's living, are not worthy of comparison with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation awaits with eager longing for the revealing of the Son of God. See, if we don't understand that it, this idea, I think we end up spending an enormous amount of time, energy, and effort just consuming with trying to figure out, is this it? Instead of the task at hand. Let me answer the question. Is this the last days? Yes. <laughs> but is this the day? Not yet. Not yet. The evil that we are witnessing, the atrocities currently happening in Israel and those around the world, and those that support such depth of depraved darkness is not new. And it's a worldview that would allow the wiping of a people from a nation off the earth, if meaning Israel. And there are numerous examples of Scripture. You can go all the way back and read it, the book of Esther and see the same spirit there in, in the person of Haman who wants to just completely obliterate the Jews. You could also consider not just our government, but governments all over the world. We have this increasing hunger for more and more control over its people. You can understand and read scripture where it says knowledge will increase. The explosion of technology. Everybody's ramping up about AI and what that means and all of that. The financial instability around the world that you see. The calculated devaluing of the family and its desired demise. The promotion of immorality at every turn and the marketing that goes with it. All of those things can point to the end. And we are in the midst of a pattern like the generation before us who live at Pentecost. Times of great suffering, especially in this moment in time for our fellow Palestinian brothers and sisters who have been saved by Jesus Christ. Well, you won't hear anything about them. You have to work really hard to find anything about those Christian brothers and sisters that are living in the midst of all this just immense evil. They're not even part of the conversation. But they are ravaged by the war that's taking place. Those who are hated by Muslims and even those who are hated by Jewish orthodoxy along with other non-combatants, will die just like they have in all other wars. And currently, for you and I, there is less suffering in the sense of comparison of what's going on there. That's, it's not happening here. 
But make no mistake, we are living in the last days, but we don't know the day. Therefore, how do you stand ready? What does it all mean to us? How do you live freely as a Christian with joy and the expectation of Jesus coming? That he describes it himself, the great and terrible day of the Lord. Matthew 24, 44, you'll almost be ready all the time for the Son of Man will come when it's least expected. Now, because it's going to happen, you and I better do something about it. You better respond. You better react to it. So if you would, go to Revelation chapter 22. And we're going to spend the rest of our time there and kind of unpack this pattern of what's being disseminated. Well, you think it'll take us a while to get through Titus if we ever get to Revelation. Woo! But we're going right to the end. And I want to give you four basic actions of preparedness that you and I need to be doing Probably you'll look at these and go, well, I'm already doing those. Well, guess what? What does that mean? <laughs> You're probably ready. Jesus was preparing his disciples as he's on the mountain and as they're coming off the mountain. In our text from Mark, don't tell anyone it's not ready, but we're on the other side of all of that. And so we need to be prepared. Verse 6, chapter 22 says this. And he said to me, this is John, the angels were, these are trust. These words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord God, the spirit of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what soon must take place. I just got to keep going because I'll be here forever and I know that frustrates you all. <laughs> Behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Remember, this is at the end. All the things that's transpired in the book of Revelation he's gone through. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. <clears throat> When I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. This is not the first time, by the way, he's done that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers and the prophets and those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of this prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoers still do evil and the filthy still be filthy. And the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense, wrath, with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Four actions to live by out of this. And I'm just going to try to run through these really quick, too quick. Verse 7. Here's the first action, and that's your obedience. Your obedience. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of this prophecy. Blessed is the one who keeps my word. The coming of Christ demands that you count your life and where it's at this day, this hour. Because you don't know when he's coming. You and I need to have this real awareness that he is coming. That he is coming back. Otherwise, we are left to complacency. So when it's, uh, we spent uh, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Uh, we came back last night watching our grandkids because son-in-law's birthday, daughter takes him to Chicago, all this. It was, it's just wonderful to spend time with the grandkids. And <clears throat> it brought back some memories because one of their chores, now that they have a dog, <clears throat> is they have to clean the yard. <laughs> and my oldest, he's 12, Cardi goes out, and he, go, he wasn't out there like five minutes. Now... I know, because I had 
At one time, three dogs in the backyard. There's no possible way you can get done in five minutes. <laughs> he just walked out. This is where she goes. I'm like, no way, dude, because I was outside the backyard with your dad, and guess what? I stepped in. <laughs> so I told him, I said, sometimes, you know, they always ask about growing up stories. And I, I remember having to do the chores in the backyard. And my dad, would, he would give me this amazing wisdom. So young people, listen up. Listen to the wisdom of your parents. He would say, you know, son, if you would just actually spend five minutes a day, you wouldn't have to spend all morning on Saturday to clean it. Right? And I could grab the shovel. I'm dragging the shovel. Stupid dogs. Why do we have these dogs? Rah, rah, rah. And if I didn't do that, or if I got in trouble... My mom would remind me, hey, do your chores. And if, see, my mom was never one to wait for my dad to get in trouble. I mean, she was on it. She'd never waited, ever. And the scary part was, is once there was discipline with mom, she would say this, wait till your dad gets home. Oh, my word. What does that do when the presence and this understanding of dad's coming back? Man, you are doing everything you can to mom to smooth whatever that was over because you don't want her to get it again. That's this idea. When he's coming back, my life changes, right? This understanding that he's coming back. This book of Revelation, John says, is worthy of your obedience because he's established in truth. It's not something that he's just recreating of his own mind. This is from God. It is not a forgery. Some of you might be asking, or if you have a gospel account, hey, how do you know when you have that gospel? How do you know it's not a forgery? Well, let me just give you one point because we're running out of time already. How do you know it's not a forgery? Because if you're going to write a book, chances are you're not going to condemn all of humanity and call them to repent and remind them how sinful they are. That's not the kind of book you would write, would it? It just comes right straight out of that. Christ is the Savior you need, and if you don't have him, there is no hope for you. Let me clarify what obedience, what I mean by obedience. Just another example of life and all of that. But when uh, driving my kids in the, in the back seat when they're little, and they have this, once they figure out how to do stuff, hey, I can unbuckle <laughs> as you're driving 70 miles an hour down the highway, right? And as the dad, you're like, get back in the seat. And you can't reach them. So you hit the brakes so they come forward. Now I got them. No, just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Trick you. (laughs) But you want them to sit down. And, And truly, you do not want, dad does not, he can't pull over because cars are passing him. You can't be passed. You do not want me to stop. So I can, you feel the tension. And so they finally sit down and buckle up. And then comes this. I may be sitting on the outside, but on the inside, I'm still standing up. Right? So you can have this obedience of legalism. I can make you do this. Why? Because I'm the dad. I'm bigger. I'm stronger. I'm all those things. Until someone comes along in my life that's bigger, stronger, fast, whatever than I am. Or has some greater authority. But that's not the kind of obedience that God is after, is it? That's legalism. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. It's an obedience that comes from your desire and love for him. Not that he's going to ground and pound you. That's not what he's after. If you truly love somebody, will you not submit to them? Will you not, out of deference from time to time, 
in my marriage, it's a struggle sometimes, right? <laughs> Come to re-engage. You'll hear all about it. Um, you're hum- you're going to humble yourself. And in deference, okay, sure, I'll, that's fine, right? And you work through those things because you love them. And if I really love God, do I need to have the Ten Commandments nailed to my wall at home? Do you do that with your kids? Do you have a list of, hey, don't do these things? Well, you might, but do you need them? Are you constantly worried about those? God doesn't treat us that way. I don't know how you're affected by whatever sin you struggle with or when you react, but you don't get to the point where, oh, no, God's going to get it to me now. Wait till he gets home. That's not who he is. Do you understand? He's already done that at the cross. Whatever you find yourself in at this moment and this time, or when you get there, he's already been there at the cross for you. And so we're obedient out of just love. So my first reaction should be, God, I'm really sorry. Please forgive me. I grieved you. I grieved your testimony. Now the world has some way to disparage who you are. But he can even at that moment work all of that for his glory. He uses sin sinlessly in your life. He's the only one who can. What did Peter say in 2 Peter 3? Since all these things are to be dissolved. He's talking about the world. Christ is coming back. All these things are going to be remade, dissolved. He uses, that's the word he used. The end of the world is coming. He says this, what sort of people ought you to be? You just don't sit around and speculate about it. Is this it? Is this the day? What should we do? We're not walking on eggshells. There's no need for that. You do something. He says you ought to be holy. You ought to be godly. You ought to look forward to it and hasten the day, he says. It's a old word, but hurry up the day. I want this to happen. He goes on to say, you ought to be, at the end of verse 14, diligent to be found without spot, blemish, and be at peace. So the word of God says Jesus is coming. So your response is to be obedient. Whatever the principles are in the word of God, we talked about this last week, how you find that, how you see his glory in the word. Pick whatever topic. We, talked, we just went through that last week. It doesn't matter which one. But at the end of that, you will see his glory revealed on how you and I are supposed to respond to whatever that is. And my role at that point is to be obedient and say, not my will, Lord, but yours. And conform my rebellious heart to your way. Because it is the most blessing I can ever experience in life. Listen, it won't necessarily be easy. If you think Christianity is easy, boy, I got something to tell you. Easy is just to do what the world does. That's easy. Oh, you'll have a whole sort of different circumstances, and your life may be great, it may not be, it doesn't matter, but it's easy to do. Why? Because most everybody's doing it. And this will definitely make you stand out Jesus is coming again. Here's the second one, verse 9 of Revelation 22. What does he say in verse 9? Well, look at verse 8, because this ties into it. John heard this, and when I heard it, I saw them, the angels. I fell down to worship. This is not the first time he's done that. And I have to believe, John, it's not that he's, he's, he's wanting to do this, but when you see an angel, I mean, when you see glory like that, what would be your response? Hey, what's up? How's it going? Yeah, I don't think so. Everywhere in Scripture, what does everybody do? They are flat on their face. 
I've never seen this before. It is overpowering. It's this immediate recognition. It's like it pierces right to who you are, and you see yourself in the most clear, clearest like mirror ever, and you see all of who you are, and the only response you can do is just fall down and worship. And he's admonished, don't do that. Verse 9, but he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant and with you and your brothers, the prophets. And those who keep the words of this book, the obedience in verse 7, worship God. Corresponding faith consequence of being obedient is to worship. You can make a note there if you're taking notes. Psalms 26 is a good place. I just want to cover this super fast. I say that, and you're like, yeah, I'll believe it when I see it. I know. Worship, what is that? There's some characteristics. Let me just run through these really quick. What's one characteristic of worship? Faith. Or you could use trust. In order to really worship God, faith is the key to everything. Listen, if you're not really trusting in God, your worship is fake. If you're saying, oh God, I praise you for who you are, thank you, and you sing all the songs and hymns, thank you for who you are, being, and then you go out here and start chewing on your fingernails and you're worried and all that, and you can't figure out how you're going to pay the next bill or where it's going to come from, your worship today was a mockery. Or if you're praising God and praising Him, all His power and everything about Him, again, and you're a nervous wreck, something's just not right. That's not how it's meant to be. There's a disconnect, in other words, between what you profess and what you actually are doing. James said it this way, I will show you my faith or my trust by what I what? Do. We're not talking about salvation. That's not it. You're not doing things to get salvation. You already have the salvation. Now I'm going to demonstrate that by what I exhibit in my life. Do I trust him? That's the purest sense of worship if you will. God looks at the heart, 1 Samuel 16, 7. He doesn't look at the outward appearance, he says. The basis of real worship is trust. Here's another one. Loving kindness. A friend of God. The loving kindness of God. To desire the relations to cultivate cultivate that. To watch it grow in your life. To be a blessing to others and see fruit of that in your life it's like if you if you maybe you planted a garden this year or or you know you just can't you can plant the seed you can't it has to grow it's designed to grow and what is it else is designed to do it's designed to bear fruit you can't not let it it just does it naturally when you trust the lord when when you know that you're a friend of god that he's your you're going to start bearing this You, you can't stop it there's no possible way for you to stop it here's another one you're going to love the truth In other words, the word of God in worship for you is a high priority. You can't be worshiping God and living in error, in other words, again, like we talked about last week, or living in sin. can't worship. Here's another one. You're going to hate evil. We don't like, that's a four-letter word now, but there are things that God hates, right? Jesus does, in fact, draw lines and makes distinctions of what is good and evil. He is the standard. We talk about that a lot. By what standard? And so, therefore, you won't get involved with evildoers, in other words. Again, that's Psalms 26. The company you keep matters. It really does. And let me give you a few attitudes, too. The attitudes of worship, 
One of those will be thankfulness. Are you thankful? In your heart of hearts, are you thankful? Are you thankful for what God has done, who he is? Do you give him thanks in all things? How about praise? That's another attitude. Do you like to tell of what he's done in your life, to verbally express those, either in song or in your testimony? To, 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 can you just see the things that he's doing in your life? Listen, take time to read the book of Habakkuk, because that's basically what that is. It's just this praise of what God has done. It goes over and over and over again of what he has done. Here's another attitude, God's presence. David said this, don't take your spirit from me, Lord. He sinned greatly with, he had an affair. Don't, don't take your spirit from me. He repented of all that. And the amazing thing of all those things in that situation that David did and the consequences that came, what did God call him? He loved to worship. He was called a friend, a man after what? My own heart. That is an amazing response to what the grace does and forgiveness does in your life because of the cross, because of worship. Is it better than one day in his courts than a thousand elsewhere? Is that you? Or like Moses, Lord, just let me see you. I want to be in your presence. That he would even walk with you through the valley of the shadow of death when that day comes for you. Here's another one, trust. God, I trust you with my life. I trust that you are a good, good father. That's the exchange that I've made. I repented of my sin. I left one kingdom of evil, darkness, and sin and came over to be a slave of this one. And you promised as a good dad that you would take care of all my needs. No one was doing this over here. There's no promise over here in Satan's world and the systems of the world and everything that we're seeing in, in the world that's happening. There's no safety net for you. Oh, the government will try. But only over here in Christ will he say, I will take care of you to the end. Do you trust him? And finally, how about fortitude, another attitude? I will not be moved. That's worship. Here's the third action. Verse 10. Proclaim. He said to me, do not seal up the words of this prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Don't seal it up. He was told that before. But not this one. You got to proclaim it. Again, there is no... What Jesus said in Mark, don't tell anyone. That's gone. Now he's saying what? Tell everyone. Go and make disciples. That's no longer relevant to be quiet. The message must be proclaimed. And it's a message that needs to be spread. Listen, again, just, I'm just so appreciative, again, with what's happening in Israel, all the world events, and you see those pictures and the, just the horror of it all. It was just so good this week to go hang out with my grandkids and just hug on them. <laughs> It was just, it was just good. However, when their basketball runs across the street, and Ari, who's seven, oh, what's, what's he focused on? Just the ball. I got to get it back. And there's cars, right? And you as a dad, a mom, a grandpa, what is your response? You are screaming and yelling, aren't you? You're not being polite. <laughs> Why? Because you know what's coming or what could happen. And if you don't do anything and everything you can possibly do in that moment, what good is it?
you didn't move, say, do, whatever it was you could do in that situation, that's a serious, serious indictment of who and what you believe. And so we need to be busy, not about sealing the words and keeping it quiet, but expressing it, preaching it. Since there's a tremendous warning in the whole of Revelation, we must speak the truth. The term he's using here, it's at hand or it's near, it means it's imminent. It's not like, again, it's not the day, but it's imminent. It's going to happen. He is coming. And because of that, we need to spread the word. And Acts, again, the Spirit has come upon you. You will be my witnesses. At the end of that, when, they, when Jesus ascends, they're all, man, is he just going to, you know, up and down? Is that what this is? What's happening? And then the two angels come, wait, what are you staring at? Let's get to it. Get in the game. Unload everything that the world says to, to, to drag you, to keep you, to keep, keep you fixed off on other things other than living your life for the Lord and proclaiming it. The failure to proclaim the truth of this book, John, is the warning of judgment that is coming in disobedience to God. It's not meant to be closed. It's not meant to be sealed up. You and I must live in light of Christ's return. And that, just that, should change our lives for two reasons. One, because when he returns, we will face him in the record of the deeds that we have done. And number two, all those people where you live, work, and play that don't know the Lord will be judged. Verse 11, let me just cover this really quick. So this is, this is the inference to that. It's quite a startling verse when you read verse 11. Let the evildoer still do evil. Let the filthy still be filthy. And the righteous still do right. And the holy still be holy. What's he getting at? If a man is unjust and is rejecting the message of the gospel, leave him alone. He's going to be living this out for all eternity. He'll be unjust forever. He'll be filthy forever. He's rejecting, not you, but the message of the cross. And so it is true with those who are righteous and holy. Listen, there is no second chance. They'll be eternally separated from God himself. And so we proclaim the message of Jesus coming. We're going to do that in a few months, right? In the Advent of his birth, we like that one. We love that. And it is a joyous and grand time to do so. But when it comes to the cross, when you hear the gospel, it either makes them right and repentant, or it just confirms how hard their heart is, like Pharaoh. If it doesn't absolve their sin, it condemns their sin. Do you see it? They will become penitent, or their hardened heart will get harder and harder and harder. How long has it been since you sat down with somebody and had a gospel conversation about Christ? I'm not talking about, you know, hey, it's on my back of my car, my bumper sticker, church's logo, or whatever. But how long has it been since you've talked to somebody about what hell is like, how God describes that, or warned somebody about the eternal destruction that comes from rejecting Jesus Christ? 
how often do I, do we, go, mm, do I really want to have that conversation right now? Probably should. Mm. Or soft pedal it in some way. Here's the last one, verse 12, and that's service. Mark 13, we'll get to that because this will be repeated, but Mark 13, 33 says, Be on guard, keep awake. What did the disciples do this time when they were with Jesus? What did they do? They fell asleep. What are they going to do at the Garden of Gethsemane? Fall asleep. He says, Be on guard, keep awake. Luke 12, 35, blessed is, uh, the blessing comes to those who are awake and working when the master comes. We're to watch, be ready, and to serve. So what's the big deal about serving? Well, verse 12 here makes it very clear when you read it. Why are you going to be serving? Behold, I am coming soon. Okay, great. And here's why. Bringing my recompense with me to repay everyone for what he has done. He's bringing his reward, in other words, or his judgment. I prefer reward. How about you? I like rewards. Don't you like rewards? That's part of the process. You're all like, mm, I don't know where you're going at. Oh, come on. Y'all, well, most of you are still working, right? What's the reward? You're trading something for what? Money. I'm trading my time, my knowledge, my expertise, or whatever it is, and I want something in return. Fair trade, isn't it? Where do you think all that comes from? This isn't bad. This isn't anything like that. Some of you, do it, you get a lot of reward. Hallelujah. Good on you. But you're going to get a reward. We need to be busy about serving the Lord, our, our Lord Christ. In other words, you orient your life and the priorities in your life to serve him. And here's what it doesn't mean, Okay. It doesn't mean you're in a monastery somewhere and you're just walking around and, and you're, you know, you're, you're stuck inside these walls and doing that and trying to be away from the world. Guess what always follows you wherever you go? <laughs> Sin, my failure, right? You can, you can not come out and do anything, but it's still going to come to you. Jesus Christ is the only one who washes that away in your life. The service that comes, again, is because it's worship. It's this joy to do so. If you, listen, if you think this is worship and that's the extent of your worship, oh man, I feel sorry for you. You are to be most pitied. I'm plagiarizing from Paul. <laughs> but if this is, oh, this church is so bright. Again, did student ministry, love students. They're wonderful. We have some amazing students. It's so good to see them. Let me give you two examples about serving from students. Um, I don't know if they're in here. And I, when I have these glasses on, I can see you all, but I can't see really who you are. Right? Um, beautiful young lady. She's uh, celebrating her, birth, her birthday month. Sasity <laughs> just turned 16, right? Last year, she wanted to do a, a, a lock-in. And like, yeah! So she served it. She did it. She pulled it all together. So students could come, share, hang out, be together, grow in relationship. It's a beautiful thing. Some of these beautiful long ladies last week, I didn't see them this week, but last week, I know that... Uh, to help you older ladies passing things out. Uh, here's the calendar. Here's the, the women's brunch. All those things. I love that. It does not have to be climbing. Oh, God wants me to go do this amazing, crazy thing. And it's going to be. Uh, uh, it. How about this one? Children do what? 
Obey your parents in the Lord. <laughs> that's worship. That's service. Let me give you another one. Um, Levi. I know Gordon's here. I love Gordon. Gordon's this beautiful, seasoned saint. <laughs> right? And so last week was the first men's breakfast, first Saturday of every month. And so um, it was just a beautiful thing to see that Levi went and picked him up and brought him. You know how many students are scared when you get gray hair to talk to you? <laughs> oh, I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. Fair enough. They, if you got gray hair, they're intimidated by you. Unless all you gray hairs have made the attempt to build into their life and somehow, which you should. Service. I mean, there's a thousand and one ways you can do this, but you're going to serve. Why? Because God has gifted you. You are remarkable in the kingdom. And if you don't serve, you are jeopardizing the rest of us who desperately need you to serve. I mean, think about my, you look at me, think about me. I am such in this narrow, narrow giftedness. I come up, I preach and teach. And do, I've been doing that so long. I used to do landscaping. It was a lot of fun, but that's been like 20 some odd years ago. My scope of expertise has gone, you know, from broad to like, what? So I'll just say this. I need all the help I can get. You're needed. You're needed in this body to grow it, to shape it, to add to it, to glorify the Lord in it. And it's just a beautiful thing to see. Some of you will say, boy, someday I want to start a Bible study. Someday I want to do that for the Lord. Someday I'll go on that mission trip. Someday, someday I'll witness to my neighbor or share my faith. Someday I'm going to do this or that. Someday I'll teach this guy. Someday I'll... And guess what? It never comes and it just fades away. It's time to do it. Maybe you're saying this morning, well, I'm not even a Christian. I have no idea what you're talking about. What do I do? Verse 17, the spirit and the bride of chapter 22 of Revelation say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires to take the water of life without price. It's free to you today. Today is the day of salvation. Get rid of anything that hinders you to run the race to its complete end. It's time to get together, to do life together stronger and better in these moments that we're living in, to, to understand and to demonstrate that as a body of Christ. To quit spinning our wheels, maybe, to serve proclaim to worship and to obey now is the time to do the things you know he wants you to act on is this the end the better question is this are you ready for it to be the end jesus thank you for your mercy and grace that saves the people to yourself in our helpless estate that you saw fit to die for us to pay our price, to create a new identity in Christ, that our identity is solely fixed on who he is and what he's done in his nature and character of being truly God and truly man. And so, Father, I pray and ask this morning that you would help us to be a people of action. And, Father, for many, we... We are 
and we say, praise the Lord, you're ready. And God, I pray this morning if there was someone who is not ready, who hasn't come to saving faith, that we are ready to baptize the nations here. Father, I pray and ask continually for many years now that you would demonstrate in the Holy Spirit you would be poured out here for revival here in this place, in this time, in this moment. That you would be glorified. That we would make much of you because you are coming. God, help us to be ready, each and every one. In Jesus' name, amen.